This is Ader Nabetter. My name is Avi Singh. I'm here with Sajid Khan. What up, Sajid? What up, Avi? Good to see you, man. It's good to see you, too. It's been a while. Uh, We're back on the podcast dial, and today we're going to be talking to our friends and pretrial justice experts, Carson White and Carly Ware. They both specialize in pre-arraignment representation and I've been thinking a ton really digging into the proposal to end money bail in California and we are going to talk about that proposal it's proposition 25 and we are going to talk about how it would operate we are going to talk about how it compares to bail as we have it in California with constitutional protections so Carson Carly welcome to the show thank you thank you yeah, it's good to have you guys. You know, I when we came up with this podcast episode idea, the way I was thinking about it was we are in an election cycle. It's probably one of the more significant elections of our of our time. We've never done like an aider and a better election episode in our three years of uh, running. And this is kind of what I was thinking we can do, like a 2020 aider and a better election panel. And I couldn't think of better people than Carly and Carson to hash some of these things out, especially Prop 25, because it's really muddled and confusing. And there's a lot of conflicting perspectives on it, even within the public defender community. So that's, I'm, I'm so grateful that we could talk about it here together. Y'all, we're going to be talking about something that's somewhat California centric. We're talking about ballot propositions uh, and one specific ballot proposition in California, which would change money bail. Uh, can you tell us, you know, do you think people outside of California you know, why should they be listening to this? Uh, what significance, if any, does Prop 25 have to a national conversation about pretrial incarceration? So the Arnold Foundation risk assessment instrument is uh, one that's being used in Santa Clara County. So it's the one that Carly and I will probably be talking about the most, but that's an instrument specifically that's used um, across the country. And I think nationally right now, we're seeing a movement pushing back against cash bail and trying to reimagine what pre-arraignment detention looks like in its absence. And risk assessment instruments are really the thing that's kind of stepping up to fill in that gap. Um, so I think just a general familiarity with what they actually are, how they're used, kind of how they are really insidious um, is really useful to have no matter where you are. What I want to say about about this topic is I've had to really work to educate myself about risk assessment as a concept and about the specific risk assessment tool that we'll be discussing. So this risk assessment instrument that we're going to discuss that is the basis of the bail reform idea, at least in Santa Clara County, is part of a widespread idea of kind of doing money ball on the criminal justice system. It's like, how do we take statistics instead of looking at someone and being like, you look like a catcher who can really hit the ball. It's like, okay, you've played a million games in your life. What happened? And there's a bunch of people with your similar statistics that also played a bunch of games. What happens? Like, do I need you for my team? It's the idea of risk assessment is the idea of using data to make decisions because the data demonstrates that the decisions will reach that outcome that you want more likely than not. So that's the idea of a risk assessment tool. If I if I may, I'd like to share a little bit that I learned about, about the public safety assessment, which is the Arnold Ventures 
risk assessment tool that uh, we spent the most time getting familiar with because it's the one that San Francisco uses and the one that our county in Santa Clara County will use. Can I tell you guys a little bit about this thing? Tell us. Yeah. Okay, so this is really interesting. So the organization that made this tool gives it away for free. It was called the Laura and John Arnold Foundation. It recently changed its name to Arnold Ventures. But John Arnold is a Texas billionaire who came from oil money. He worked at a company that you guys might remember called Enron. So he was literally an Enron. Um, <laughs> he was an oil analyst and trader at Enron. Okay. And if, for those that might not remember Enron, because you're not old like me, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, Enron was this energy company that basically hid billions of dollars in debt from like failed projects and deals. And, um, and then it went bankrupt and all the shareholders and employees lost all their retirement. It was really sad. And then all the, a bunch of the executives got indicted. So he didn't get indicted, but he made like almost a billion dollars at Enron. He had a huge bonus. And then, um, and then he became a hedge fund trader. And then he started this foundation with his wife. So in 2008, he switched gears to start this foundation and they've, really invested a lot of money in important areas of social reform. So like prescription drug prices, you know, predatory education practices and pre-trial justice. So like this is one of the projects that these folks took their money. I, I like to see people as their best versions of themselves. So I credit the Arnolds for taking this money that they could have just bought an island. I mean, maybe they also bought an island, but they took it and invested it in this really important social research. But I think people should know that this is where the money came from. Do you know why they had an interest in this particular area of the system? Like any idea? I have no insight into that. It seems like whoever's in charge of this Arnold Ventures entity really cares a lot about trying to get the right answer. Um, I believe that that's the motivation behind risk assessment instruments is it's really, I think the people are trying to do things in a new way. I mean, one of their mission statements on their website is to remove barriers between data and decisive action, working swiftly across the policy change spectrum. So it's like, that's a good idea. I like that more than the idea of a judge squinting at somebody with a neck tattoo and being like, you have to stay in jail, you know? I would credit this idea as a good idea. It's the details that bother me. First of all, when you spoke about Moneyball, you spoke to my soul uh, as an A fan <laughs> and as like a baseball uh, aficionado. And so- Saj is uh, prepared to endorse the proposition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the reason for this conversation is because within the public defender community and then within the broader community, there is such great confusion and divide on Prop 25. Literally, like I even earlier today, I'm looking on my Facebook thread and there's some public defenders saying they're voting yes on Prop 25. And then CACJ, which is the California Attorneys for Criminal Justice Organization is saying no on 25. Uh, Debug, who we all work with closely is saying no on 25. And then there's other public defenders that are saying yes on it. And so it's just a very, it's like a very a set of very muddy waters right now. And so I, I kind of wanted to have a conversation with you both and all of us about why is there this divide? And then how do we kind of clarify, uh, you know, a path forward um, as it relates to ending money bail? And yeah, and all of us, 
probably share the view that money bail is gross and unjust, and all the public defenders probably agree that money bail has significant uh, flaws. It's racially discriminatory. It's uh, it openly, overtly uh, discriminatory against people who don't have money. Is this replacement? What's what's good about this replacement? What's bad about this replacement? I think yeah. I think that we have to start by saying yes. Money bail is is awful. It's it's bad. It's evil. It's should be unconstitutional. Um, but I think it's also really important to remember that when we talk about the, you know, the harm that's caused by money bail, right? There's a lot that just on the face of it, kind of what Avi just said, it's, it's racially discriminatory. It discriminates against poor people, much like the rest of the criminal punishment system. Um, so there's a lot on the face of money bail that's really easy, even for people who might not be on board with abolition or agree that the that the system as a whole is, is really flawed. There's a lot that people can look at and say, this, this seems wrong. This seems like it's different from the ideals of the system that we want in our country. But with the exception of you know, predatory bail bonds practices, when we talk about the harm that's caused by money bail, right, by people who are left in jail because they are unable to afford purchase their freedom. It's, you know, pressure to give up your constitutional rights, to take a plea deal in order to get out of custody. It is the trauma of institutionalization, of family separation, um, it's job loss, it's housing loss, um, it's destabilization for people who are suffering from um, mental illness or substance abuse disorders. Um, you know, and that's just really just scratching the surface, right? But so when we talk about all of those things, we're not actually talking about money bail. We're talking about pretrial detention. Um, and so what's really important when thinking about Prop 25 is what's the impact of that going to be on the number of people who are kept in pretrial custody? And it's our understanding that this will result in more people being kept incarcerated pretrial. Why? Um, the standards are much lower for, it introduces this thing called preventative detention, which Carly can speak to probably a little bit more completely than I can. But what we've seen is that when district attorneys have the opportunity to ask for preventative detention, they do. And this, it seems like on its face, lowers the standards for when preventative detention, which is detention without bail in order to protect the public safety, um, can be requested. Guys, I'm going to be voting no on Proposition 25. Um, I've been a public defender for 11 years, and before that, I was a civil rights attorney. I worked at the ACLU, and the reason I'll be voting no on Prop 25 is that it sounds really good. Like, Prop 25 sounds good. Like, all the little descriptions of it and the titles that are used and the, you know, advertising seem like things I support, but it took me about three full days to read the actual statutes. And it's because of the actual statutes that I'm voting no, because I find them confusing and internally inconsistent and somewhat hypocritical in the way that they try to solve the problems that money bill creates. So the, the framework for Prop 25 is based on something called risk assessment, okay? And risk assessment is basically this idea of using a tool like the one put out by the by Arnold Ventures, the public safety assessment tool. What these tools do are they look at factors. The public safety assessment tool was created by studying 
over a million cases of real people, okay? So this Arnold Foundation went and looked at 750,000 actual cases from all over the country. There was more than 300 jurisdictions that these cases came from. And they looked at real people in real court and what really happened to the people. Did they come back to court? Did they commit a new crime? Um, what happened when they were released pre-trial? Okay, and then they looked at those outcomes and then using the data, these analysts figured out nine factors about a person who's, who's arrested that are the most predictive toward future behavior of either returning to court or committing a new crime while the case is going on, okay? So okay. there's nine predictive factors. And the factors boil down into the categories of the age of the person arrested, the crime that they were arrested for and their criminal history. The okay. actual nine factors are of the of the public safety assessment are age at current arrest, older and young, older or younger than 23, whether the current offense is violent, uh, is there a pending charge at the time of arrest? Is there a prior misdemeanor conviction? Is there a prior felony conviction? Is there a prior violent conviction? Is there a prior failure to appear? either the last two years or older than the last two years? And did this person ever serve a prior sentence of incarceration? That's it. So this tool predicts people's future behaviors of returning to court based on those and whether they're supposedly dangerous if they're released based on those nine things, not based on uh, where do they live? Do they have family support? They live with mom and they work at this and that place. Do they have a job? Do they have children? Like the actual things we learn about our clients aren't part of this tool, okay? Because this data shows that that's not predictive information apparently. And then after the 750,000 cases, this organization, Arnold Ventures, looked at another half a million cases to validate the tool. So they call it validating the tool. And so they checked it and said, okay, we think that these nine predictive factors are the ones that are most important, but is that really right when we look at another half million cases and they kind of fine-tuned how this tool works. That's how we get to the risk assessment instrument itself, okay? Now, Prop 25 takes the risk assessment instrument and makes it the beginning of the inquiries. So instead of a judge being the beginning of the inquiry, it takes the risk assessment tool and it says, you're either gonna score high, medium, or low on this tool. If your score is high, you get treated a certain way. If your score is low, you get treated another way. And if you're medium, you get treated in between. Okay, That's the basic framework of Prop 25. And if that's all it did, I'd probably vote for it. But it carves out all these crazy exceptions. So one of the things I've heard you talk about previously is that the way the foundation set up this risk assessment tool is you get high, medium, or low. And then from that, there might be some suggestion of what to do, uh, but not the suggestion is not to hold somebody in jail from that tool that they're using. Can you explain that part of it? Yeah, so the Arnold Ventures who created this tool and who licenses it or not to um, counties or jurisdictions that want to use it, they have made public that the premise of this tool and the score, high, medium, or low, is only helpful to a judge in determining what release conditions should apply to someone who is released pretrial to reduce the likelihood that they'll commit a crime and miss court. So high risk under this tool will result in more conditions being recommended. Low risk will result in 
little or no recommendations for supervision terms. This tool has no association with detention. There's no like score you can get where the tool will be like, hold this person in jail, they're too dangerous. But how does it work? How does the tool work in Prop 25? So this is one of the things that's so troubling as well about Proposition 25 is that exactly like Carly just said, the tool is explicitly not supposed to be used to determine whether or not someone is detained pre-trial, but Prop 25 will require counties to determine someone's pre-arraignment detention status. So that's the time you're in custody from between when you're arrested um, until when you're brought for court to be like formally charged, appointed a lawyer, had your rights explained to you. Um, and that period of time can be anywhere from 48 hours to seven days in California. That period of time, that two to seven day incarceration is dependent entirely upon the outcome of this risk assessment instrument. And if you score high risk on this risk assessment instrument under Prop 25, you're in custody for that time. Um, and then again, as I mentioned earlier, the preventative detention hearings, right, where there's somebody can request basically to keep you in, or in custody pre-trial without bail can happen just because you've scored high risk. And then actually, if you do score high risk, there's a presumption that you should be kept um, in custody pretrial. Although, again, this tool is supposed to have absolutely no correlation to actual detention. It's just about um, how much supervision conditions you have when you're out of custody. Yeah, I'd imagine too that, practically speaking, once that program spits out the risk determination like that in a courtroom will become like the holy grail, you know, like in terms of like judges will be like, oh, well, the risk, the objective risk assessment is saying like, I need to keep this person in. And then there's like no undoing it. Like there's nothing that we could say or present to say. And then it becomes this like, yeah, it becomes kind of a hard and true um, justification for keeping someone in um, that we have almost like no recourse to to combat or or challenge. And yeah, it can Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to ask if you could drill down a bit on what it means to be high risk in terms of those studies. So the studies of, by Arnold of the 750,000 cases and then the 500,000 confirming cases, you know, you hear that somebody's high risk of committing an offense. Does that, you know, does that have some translation, you know, uh, like uh, how often do the people in the high risk category actually commit, you know, historically the ones that we were looking at or Arnold looked at? How often do they commit the violent offense? Is it like 50% of the time? Is it like nine out of 10 of those people to be called high risk commit the offenses? Yeah, so this is, um, I think, a really important question. So first of all, I think it's important to, to say that the high, medium, low is something that comes from Prop 25. It's not something that comes from the Arnold Foundation. Um, so low, medium, high is no matter what tool you use, individual counties have to decide what risk assessment result counts as high risk, what counts as medium risk, what counts as low risk. Um, but in general, it's, you know, it's, it was really troubling for me to learn what the Arnold tool was actually predicting, right? Because it holds itself out as predicting, um, you know, the, the public safety risk that someone presents when they're out of custody pre-trial. And like Carly mentioned, it, you know, is supposed to predict whether or not you commit a new um, criminal activity or at risk for committing a new violent offense while you're out of custody pretrial. Um, but actually what it predicts is whether or not you're going to be arrested um, when you're out of custody pretrial, not whether you will be charged for a crime that you committed while you were out of custody, not that you will be convicted for a crime that you um, were accused or that you committed while you're out of custody, just 
arrest. And that's really troubling, I think, just in general, right? Because we have um, this notion in our, you know, or, or we're supposed to have that you're presumed innocent. Um, just the fact that you've been arrested is not supposed to indicate that you've actually committed a crime before you've been found guilty by a jury of your peers. Um, and then also, you know, something that we see all the time is that what you are arrested for is, you know, it's dependent upon the police officer that arrested you, that's up to them. Um, and so we see all the time, police officers will book people into custody for really like severe offenses, only to have a district attorney look at the case and say, actually, there's nothing here, I'm not going to charge it, or actually, I am going to charge it, but at, at a much less severe um, offense than what we looked at. And as for the, you know, the value of this data, right, it's, there's a high, there is a correlation between what the Arnold tool predicts and what actually happens, but there's not a ton of predictive value. So for example, the Carly mentioned that the Arnold tool will flag whether or not someone is at risk for committing um, a violent offense while they're out of custody pretrial. Um, and actually when they ran through that half million cases, um, of those people who they flagged as at risk for committing a violent offense, they only committed a violent offense 8% um, of the time. So 92% of the time when the Arnold Foundation flagged someone as potentially violent, they did not commit a violent crime. Um, on the other hand, people who they did not, or did not flag as committing a violent crime um, didn't commit a violent crime 98% of the time. Right, so it's only 2% of those people who committed a violent offense. So the difference between two and 8%, right, that's big, that's you're four times more likely um, to commit a crime if you've been flagged as violent, right? So there's a high correlation between what the Arnold tool is saying and what actually happens, but there's not a lot of predictive value. Do you all think, or have you come across in your research about the tool, the ways that using historic information from a system that is racially tilted against black and brown people kind of overtly and, and implicitly, what the racial dynamics will be with using an algorithm. So like it, it takes the past and then it it builds that into your risk score. There's lots of people who have talked about this before, but do you have any specific thoughts about this tool that will likely be implemented in lots of jurisdictions if Prop 25 passes and other uh, amendments yeah, pass I, in other states? Can I just kind of add yeah. to that, like the, like the framing of the question, because I just heard... Raj from Debug on a panel last night talking about these factors arguably being, you know, kind of proxies for race. And like, because you as a black person in this country are more likely to have police contact and then therefore more likely to um, have a potential misdemeanor on your record or a felony on your record or the things that Carly outlined as being the factors, those, those uh, predictive factors you know, how, if at all, like has the kind of the Arnold Foundation kind of factored race into that? And how, do, how like, do we imagine that this system, um, if it's adopted by, by, our, um, by our state, like how do we imagine it manifesting in terms of uh, the racial dynamics in our, in our courtrooms and in, the, in, the, in our jails? Like that's kind of what I was curious about. I mean, if I could borrow a phrase from my brother, who is a data scientist and is very well versed in these types of issues, uh, he sometimes says garbage in, garbage out. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think that's the very basic way that I understand uh, the risks and pitfalls of adopting a data-based uh, analysis of criminal justice outcomes when 
it's very significant that somebody has a prior conviction. Um, you know, you have to think, I'm not familiar with everywhere in the United States, which is where this um, algorithm was based upon when it was developed, but I'm pretty familiar with Santa Clara County. And I remember the Mercury News, our local um, paper doing a study about, you know, folks that were cited or arrested for being drunk in public and that there was an overwhelming um, racial disparity that, that that type of kind of quality of life offense was heavily policed in Latino communities and communities of color. So if you have a drunk in public conviction on your record and the same exact factors as if, you know, and you're being assessed in this risk assessment instrument and you don't have that conviction, you'd come out better without the prior conviction. You'd come out lower risk. Even if you drink in public a hundred times, but you live in Palo Alto and nobody cares and they're not calling the police on you because you're not on the east side San Jose. So it matters. But if people want a more nuanced, like there's actually studies about this that I um, don't feel confident speaking about, but there's a website where folks that really want to do in-depth research can access a lot of this information and it's um, advancing pretrial.org. That's where I found a lot of the information that I'm basing my opinions on today, but there's much more available. I think it might be good to talk about how this uh, this thing functions from the arrest to the criminal process, to the court process starting. What happens now, right? What happens in a pre, in a non-Prop 25 world from the moment you're arrested to the moment you show up to court? And then what happens uh, in the not Prop 25 world from court to you know, conviction or to acquittal uh, or, you know, to dismissal, whatever it would be uh, from the bail standpoint, not to just go do a kind of all of bail, but just the main differences that you see between the Prop 25 world and the non-Prop 25 world. I mean, one thing to start with would be a favorable part of Prop 25 is his treatment of non-excluded misdemeanor offenses. So the, the, the vast majority of misdemeanor uh, offenses in the penal code, you know, kind of the number of them uh, would be, you would not be subject to uh, being held from the moment you were booked in to jail to the being brought to court. Yes. So if Prop 25 passes, um, there will be a number of new penal code sections and they're in the penal code 1320s. It's like 1320.7, 1320.8. So if anybody wants to look those up, that's where you would look. So 1320.8, if enacted, would make the general rule that most misdemeanors are would legally required to be booked and released. So there's really no reason for a misdemeanor arrestee to even be brought into custody. But if the arresting officer thinks there's a reason, like let's say they think the person's intoxicated or something like that, the law would say, the new law would say that that misdemeanor arrestee can only be held up to 12 hours. And, and there wouldn't even be a risk assessment for most, generally for most misdemeanors because the new the Prop 25 kind of doesn't even devote resources to risk assessment for most misdemeanors. So for those folks that are arrested for the bulk of misdemeanors, they would just be cited and released. And then same with low risk felonies. So a felony arrest that would occur would get risk assessment because it's not a misdemeanor. And if the risk assessment came back low risk uh, based on those factors, uh, the nine factors, if the Arnold tool were the one being used, then Prop 25 under its framework would have that person released 
on OR without a judge ever even seeing the case. So the person will be released on their own recognizance without court review within 24 hours of booking. That's the basic rule. But then there's lots and lots of carve outs of who would not be included uh, in that uh, rule for people who haven't showed up to court yet. Yeah. So this is the part that makes me not want to vote for Prop 25 is that it's like a very simple framework at the beginning, right? It's like, okay, misdemeanor, you get sight and release, low risk, you're OR'd, but then there's all these exceptions. So there's 13 exceptions that are listed for people that would normally be released from jail, but this new law for reasons unknown to me requires them to be held for arraignment. So a judge, sorry, be held for a judge to review it. So that could happen pre-arraignment or that could happen at arraignment. So the, the 13 categories of people required to be held are people high risk, arrested for a 290 offense, arrested for most domestic violence offenses, arrested for a felony uh, that includes an element of physical violence, threat of violence, great bodily injury, or personal use of a weapon. Uh, a DUI, if if there's injury, a DUI that's a third within the last 10 years, so with two prior convictions in the last 10 years, or a DUI where the blood alcohol level was allegedly 0 0.20 or higher. There's a restraining order exception that is really hard to understand. Here's the statutory language that's proposed. A person arrested for a violation of any type of restraining order within the past five years cannot be released before judicial review. I don't know whether that means that the restraining order violation is from a five-year or newer restraining order or that the new arrest is for any offense and the person also had a restraining order violation conviction in the last five years. It's very unclear to me. So I'm about halfway done with the exceptions right mm -hmm. now. And I feel like I've been talking a long time. It's like, what are you, I can finish the exceptions and, for people to get complete information, but, but why are there yeah. so, that's my question. Why are there so many exceptions? And the list is going to grow okay. after, right? The list will yeah. then continue to grow. The, you know, you can obtain a, several carceral legislative victories uh, in the future by just adding, oh, we don't want these types of offenses to be subject to a release before court. And a release before court doesn't mean that you're not convicted. It doesn't mean that you're not subject to criminal sanction. It's just about being held before seeing a judge before you go to court where there might not even be a filing decision at that stage, right? It's possible. This is just about police officers making decisions to arrest individuals, writing down descriptions of the offenses that they think are applicable, and then that decision resulting in you being held now, normally it should be 48 hours. And when SB 10, the law that this is based on, was passed, it was around 48 hours or shorter. But in COVID times, that's been extended from two days to seven days, right? So if an officer describes your offense as a resisting arrest with force rather than a resisting arrest, then you're going to be held for two to seven days because of that exception, Right. Uh, You're getting it. That's it. Look, you use violence, is, right? And the thing is, the risk, let's say that that was the factual scenario and that the risk assessment said, you know, this person's never had a criminal history and is this certain age and isn't dangerous and isn't a risk to fail to appear for court. So that's what I don't like about Prop 25 is it's internally inconsistent. It's saying, hey, let's use risk assessment to make our decisions, except for these people. These people with, there's no statistical reason to exclude them, but they sound bad. So I'm going to exclude them. It's like, isn't that what we're not doing? 
what I understood from the kind of the legislative history of SB 10, that is now the basis of Prop 25, is that there were a lot of very well-intentioned organizations that were trying to do with the do away with the injustice and the disparities that come along with money bail as we currently know it and have known it for years, and that were actively working to try to remedy those things through this measure, but then it got watered down and essentially distorted to create what I imagine are these lists of exceptions that ultimately might result in the concern that Carson outlined at the beginning, which is more people being held pre-trial than than we currently have it. And it's all based on politics. Like the exceptions that you were going to go through, it would probably take a while, Carly, are all based on the same, um, it's, all, it's all politics. It's like, you know, who do we perceive as being kind of the boogeymen of our communities, like people that are accused of certain types of crimes and things like that. And uh, so that's why so many organizations that were on board in the beginning have taken themselves off the off the supporters list and actually have turned and turned around and said no to Prop 25. That's, I'd imagine, why that's happened. That's my understanding from talking to some of the folks that were part of the legislative process is that's exactly correct but it's even kind of worse than that it's like first the the when the this bill was introduced as an idea in the legislature it was december of 2016 that's when it was introduced and then it was amended through 2017 and went through some committees and went through some of the leg- normal legislative process then in august of 2018 it was essentially rewritten Like instead of, you can see if you go through the versions of the legislative history, there's this moment in August of 2018 where there's these 13, 20 provisions. They're all renumbered. It's just a new bill. It's a completely new bill. And so the folks that were the original sponsors, including the ACLU of Northern California and Silicon Valley Debug in August of 2018, when they learned about this new bill, they not only pulled their support from being sponsors, they went all the way to the other side of the spectrum and became opponents. I mean, that's crazy. The people that initiated the bill became opponents. And I think it, I think the biggest amendment when the bill was rewritten in August of 2018 that I can see is the concept of preventive detention. covered the pre-arraignment process, right? Or before you see a judge. We've talked about the process of being arrested by a police officer and then being held until you see a judge. And then when the court process starts, the first appearance is an arraignment where you're told the charges. Under Prop 25, the district attorney can file an application for preventive detention. And it doesn't track the risk assessment that we talked about earlier. But Carly, it's also not the same the exceptions for when they can do a preventive detention or the requirements for a court to find uh, a preventive detention 
those are different than when you get thrown out of pre-arraignment release, yeah? Yes. I mean, there are five circumstances in which a district attorney may file a motion for preventive detention at or after arraignment, but there's a catch-all. Is the num- Number five is if there's a substantial reason to believe that no non-monetary condition will reasonably assure protection of the public or a victim or the appearance of a defendant in court. So a district attorney under Prop 25 can file a motion to keep a person that's arrested in jail until the case is over in basically any case where, you know, there's some form of public safety concern or um, failure to appear concern, and they can do it throughout the case. There's not a limit on, uh, I would say there's no meaningful limit on when preventive detention can be revisited. The statute that would be added by Prop 25 at Penal Code 1320.19 says that the prosecution, the court, or the defense may reopen a preventive detention hearing or start a new hearing upon showing of newly discovered evidence facts or material change in circumstances at any time before trial. So there could be a defense motion if you were preventively detained. Uh, There could be a defense motion at every court date arguing that there's some material change in circumstance uh, with a program or with a new community tie or something like that. Uh, It's not like you get one hearing. But you have, I mean, that would be true under current situation too, right? If you have a change in circumstance. Yes. My experience is as it's somewhat difficult to convince the judges that there has been a change in circumstances if your client's in custody and the judge has already decided that that's the right decision. So like, for example, most of our judges here have ruled that literally contracting COVID-19 in jail is not a change in circumstances. Having your trial date removed and continued indefinitely because of COVID-19 court shortage is not a change in circumstances. So I wouldn't put too much, I'm not too Mm -hmm. hopeful that we can reopen. It seems more likely that if the district attorney has a phone call with an alleged victim who says, you know, oh, and this arrested person, I didn't tell you before. Also, one time I was scared because we had this conversation that concerns me, you know, that the district attorney could say, oh, that's a new thing. I didn't know that before. Now, you know, that this person is out of custody. I, I want that person in custody because I've learned this thing. Let's have a hearing. And this is the, this preventive detention thing. This is the reason why y'all think that there'll be, or the concern for more people being incarcerated when you do away with money bail money bail with constitutional protections than if you have Prop 25. Is that right? Yes. my my If Prop 25 passes, there will only be three choices for a judge when a judge is looking at an arrested person. The judge can release the arrested person on OR, on their own recognizance, meaning they just promise to come back to court and that's it. There's no conditions of release or supervised OR which means the judge is saying, okay, I'll let you out, but you have to do this drug program and you have to get tested and I can have a, you can be searched without a warrant at any time of day or night, okay? Or preventive detention. Like there's no middle, there's no bail at all. There's no cash bail. So there's no like, okay, $5,000 and supervised OR, or it's either you cannot get out of jail at all while the case is going on, or you're out on some form of supervision. So that's a but kind of a perfect, perfect segue to kind of my my next set of our next question, which is, what's the kind of the better 
more ideal alternative. Like my sense and reading from people like uh, Mano Raju, you know, the San Francisco public defender, and from reading the releases from the CACJ is is they're 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 actually advocating for a modified version of our current bail system or a more equitable, just version of our current bail system. So where cash bail still exists, but it looks different in manifestation or practice than it does today. Can you guys give me some insight on what a better, kind of more just, more ideal version of the bail system could look like or, as opposed to what Prop 25 is attempting to do? It's gonna sound like a cop-out, but it's, it's not meant to be a cop-out. Um, which is that, you know, these laws were designed by people who look like us, right? Like big lawyers with fancy degrees who are who are removed from the reality of this system pretty significantly. And I think that whatever comes after cash bail, because I, I do think cash bail is on its way out, um, should be informed by the community, by the same people who were designing SB10 in the first place. You know, what, what SB10 originally looked like was basically taking Article 1, Section 12 of the California Constitution, which limits when someone can be detained pretrial without bail. It says you have the absolute right to bail in California unless some of these factors are met. And so it basically codified that exact same section, except instead of saying um, you have the absolute right to bail, it was like you have the absolute right to, to pretrial release. In, in general, what should come here is something that, you know, in the midst of an uprising calling for us to re-examine how we relate to policing and how we relate to our criminal justice system, right, is something that um, doesn't increase more funding for police, that doesn't increase um, the amount of people that we're keeping in cages, um, that challenges the idea that policing and cages are, are what keep us safe. And Prop 25 doesn't do any of those things, right? It requires counties to create pre-trial supervision agencies to police people pre-trial. So that's going to be more money going to law enforcement to staff those agencies. Um, it gives more technology to police by requiring the acquisition of risk assessment instruments. And again, possibly more funding if um, they're not able to get um, the risk assessment instruments for free the way that Santa Clara County was. Um, and it doubles down on the idea that policing and supervision are what keeps our community safe rather than just giving people the resources they would need to not become criminally you know, involved with the criminal justice system in the first place. The way I would propose to reform our current system after I vote no on Prop 25 is that our judges could continue the reform that has started, ironically, because of COVID-19. COVID created in California an emergency bail schedule where many nonviolent offenses, in fact, most offenses, instead of having a numerical amount of cash bail at all, have been rescheduled to be $0 bail, which is essentially release on your own recognizance. And we haven't seen crime in Santa Clara County rising, even though we've reduced our jail population by almost a thousand and went down from over a little over 3,000 people to a little over 2,000 people. Cash bail has become profitable for the private bail industry because the bail industry gets this non-refundable 10% fee. And I don't know, that's not in the law. Like instead of setting your bail at $50,000, knowing that you're going to give $5,000 to the bail industry and never get it back. It's a non-refundable fee. The judge could just set your bail at $500 and require you to post it. 
completely so that you'll actually get your $500 back when you're finished with your case. That's how bail is designed. It's supposed to be an incentive for somebody to return to court so that when they get their, when they complete their obligation of being charged with the crime and have answered for it, whatever the outcome is, the deposit that they put into the court, it's like your security deposit when you rent an apartment, you're supposed to get it back at the end. You don't like give it to some company that takes 10% and you never get it back. So somewhere in there, bail kind of evolved into this like money-making industry for the bail bonds folks. And I have nothing against bail bonds folks, but I think that the judges have a lot of power to just make bail reasonable and follow the current law, which is the federal constitution as clarified by the Humphrey case here in California. And this money that we could save could be used in such better ways. I mean, a lot of people don't have, they don't remember when their court date is or their court date changes. Like when I go to the cheesecake factory, they give me one of those little buzzers and it tells me when my table's ready. Like, can we give those? It's like, hey, you have court. Like, here's a buzzer. I'm sure that costs less than like, There are systems out there where where they're sending text messages to people. (laughs) We've got the technology, yeah. What I would just say is if you look at the Humphrey case, if you look at how the federal system operates, it's a much different system in terms of who is held and under the circumstance, the circumstances under which people are held than our system in terms of presumptions and how much evidence there needs to be before somebody's held. I think that some of the rulemaking just strongly favoring release, strongly supporting the presumption of innocence in pretrial release decisions, strongly considering a person's ability to pay if you're going to use money at all are things that would be good. Uh, One question I have is, it seems like some of the parts of Prop 25 that we disagree with have are problematic from a constitutional perspective, from a state constitutional perspective and from a United States constitutional perspective. And I don't think that's a reason to vote yes for a law because it's unconstitutional. But if, you know, with a severance provision, right? So you keep all the stuff that's not unconstitutional and you get rid of the stuff that is unconstitutional. So if preventive detention is unconstitutional, and that's a big if, then under the rules that make it really problematic, and by which I mean under the rules that make it possible to get a preventive detention where you would not be able to get a no bail allowed order in California. So the you know, the, if, if there's clear and convincing evidence that somebody's release would result in a substantial likelihood of great bodily harm, that in California, those people can be held without any bail. Under preventive detention, you're way below that bar. And so the, the Venn diagram or whatever the visual that we would have, there's a huge space of individuals who would be held. So imagining that that space, that gap is an unconstitutional one. Is it better to get rid of money bail and then have our big constitutional fight than keeping money bail with some constitutional protections that we know how they operate in real life, right? Which is not perfectly. I mean, my answer to that is we have, you know, I'm a voter in California. I have a choice to make. And the choice is, do I like this confusing jumble of conflicting, internally inconsistent new statute to replace the imperfect system that we have today. And my answer is, no, I don't want this new mess. Like I'll, I'll stay with the current mess and try to fix it versus invite this unknown new guest into my home. Like, I don't like this Prop 25. And I don't think that whoever wrote this has ever stood in front of a judge with a client incarcerated by their side and had to speak 
to that person's freedom because it doesn't make any of those conversations make sense in in the the way I have experienced them for over the last 10 years. Can I tell you guys something? Of course. I'll allow it. Um, while we're, <laughs> thank you, sir. While we're talking about the Humphrey case, I actually was thinking about the, all this stuff last night and I thought, hey, what would Kenneth Humphrey score on all this stuff? Like if Kenneth Humphrey, based on his case, came in, got arrested the day after Prop 25 was passed, what, what would that look like? And so I can tell you that if you guys want. And is that based on how his case has been described in court opinions? Yes. I don't know the man. So I read Tell the us. published, I read the published opinion, which you can find at 19 Cal App 5th, 1006. Um, okay. So Kenneth Humphrey is a, uh, is African-American man. He was 63 years old at the time of his arrest. His arrest involved him um, speaking with one of his neighbors and who was in his seventies, uh, who would become the alleged victim of this crime. He spoke to the, his uh, neighbor and asked to come into the neighbor's apartment. He went into the neighbor's apartment. The neighbor gave Kenneth Humphrey $2. And then hum Mr. Humphrey took without permission, $5 and a bottle of cologne. And then also took the man's cell phone and threw it on the, on the floor of the apartment. And those and are the, left. those are the allegations in the police report recited in the, uh, in the court opinion. Yes. So I'm taking those to put into the risk assessment instrument. Okay. So I look at those facts and I beep, see beep, that. Boop, boop. Boop, <laughs> I'm just adding some sound <laughs> okay. effects. Thanks. So I put, I put Mr. Humphrey's situation, his fact situation into these risk assessment instruments. Mr. Kenneth Humphrey, if we take the facts as they're described in this published appellate court opinion, he would come in at the time of arrest and have no pending charge at the time of arrest. He would have prior convictions based on what's what we know about him in this published opinion. He has no prior failure to appear history. So he would be scaled at two out of six, which is a pretty, one is the lowest risk for failure to appear, six is the highest risk. So he's probably a low risk of failure to appear, okay? Then you plug Mr. Humphrey into the new criminal activity and new risk of violence tool, that part of the tool, and he would score pretty high. So he would score basically four out of six for potential of new criminal activity because he has a prior conviction and it's a violent conviction and um, he had a prior sentence prior to the uh, of incarceration in the past and he would have a flag on this on the risk assessment as potential violence okay so he would either score either medium or high risk when he came in so if he were medium risk and prop 25 applied he would be treated according to whatever the local rule is where he was arrested. So Prop 25 doesn't actually tell us what to do with medium risk. It tells every county to write a rule. But if he was high risk, um, if he was deemed high risk based on this, which is probably likely because of that violence flag under Prop 25, he would be prohibited from pre-arraignment release because he's high risk. He would be prohibited from court release before arraignment because he's charged with a strike. And- What um, was he accused of? Sorry, was it a Resberg? He was charged with robbery, residential burglary, and elder abuse. Wow. So okay. he, he was charged with two strikes, and the published opinion says he had three strike priors. 
Um, but the, they were the most recent of them was 14 years ago. Got it. So pretty remote priors. So the district attorney would have grounds to file a motion for preventive detention because the crime of arrest included threatened violence because it's a robbery, like taking the phone by use of force or fear uh, or throwing the phone or sorry, taking the $5 in the bottle of cologne. And then um, the preventive detention hearing for Mr. Humphrey would actually include something called a rebuttable presumption of detention. So he would come in to the preventive detention hearing with a thumb on the scale that he should remain in jail because he has a prior history of cases that resulted in conviction and because this case is accused to have been committed with violence. So that's how Prop 25 would work on a real known situation. And this man is out right now doing, you know, living his life, not being incarcerated, not having to choose whether to enter a plea in order to get a credit for time served sentence, being able to be with his family, all the good stuff. And that's something that happened. I mean, there had to be a significant court battle, right, for that to occur. But because of that court battle, now other people who are situated in his position have access to the same types of legal claims. About the rebuttable presumption, do we have a rebuttable presumption? Uh, do we have a presumption uh, for incarceration under the current system, the presumption to incarcerate? No, I mean, the, the way that it works under under Humphrey and under like the due process clause. So I think this is another area where just the rebuttable presumption in and of itself might not be constitutional. Um, but the government has to prove by clear and convincing evidence that there is nothing that they can do aside from basically keeping you in a cage um, that can protect the public safety. And this rebuttable presumption really kind of flips that on its head where all of a sudden, instead of the government having to prove that it's absolutely necessary to cage you, to keep everybody safe, you're having to prove to the court that you're entitled to one of your most basic constitutional rights, which is freedom before you've been and, found guilty of a crime. Okay, so one just legal, or one thing that just strikes me as I listen to you say that is, when we do an arraignment, there are 40 people who need our representation. There are some number of attorneys, paralegals, you know, staff there to represent those people. And a lot of times the family members aren't present at the arraignment. They might not know when the court dates are happening. And we do our very best to provide effective and aggressive litigation for those people. But it's really hard to gather details right there. The government, right, it's easier for them to gather details about an individual and rebut a presumption of freedom because they had the police investigation, they have access to criminal history information, they have larger, you know, they're just, they're the government, they have multiple times more resources than the defense attorney providing arraignment representation. So what you do is you take a, a burden on the government to argue for holding the person, and you flip it to a burden on the defense attorney who's just meeting that client for the first time to convince the court to go against that rebuttal rebuttable presumption when you have some flawed thing like the a high risk flag right that the court's going to put undue influence on uh, this is exactly the sort of thing that produces uh, you know this rebuttable presumption assigned to the defense it's totally out of line with the resources that the individual has and their counsel has you know and the kind of unlevel fight that an arraignment is 
Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about Prop 25 and how to explain it to, like, kids or something. And I'm kind of like, okay, who wants some Skittles? Like, we've got Skittles. We'll give them out. But you got to pass this Skittles assessment, okay? So we've studied this. Everyone that likes Skittles can do this test. All right? So all you 10 people, you're eligible for the Skittles lineup. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. You had skittles before so you're out and oh you live in a neighborhood where you know we don't like the people from you know what i mean it's just like what are you doing like it looks fair but it's not actually fair that's that's the reason i don't like this thing here's yeah, a, here's the reason so, I, 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 I say, and it's, it seems so scientific right like that's the other piece of this is that it seems it's like someone's like and these are lawyers right when you're like oh math like they're like oh because the math right like we don't know and, um, you know, and, and the, again, like the facade of, of being race neutral when really these are incredibly race biased schools, the idea that it's going to be less um, prejudicial against low income people when in fact we know that it's, it's incredibly prejudicial against low income people. Um, you know, and the idea that judges who are, you know, already so afraid of getting blown up in the media for letting people out of custody, right? Like that's their worst fear is now that they've got a tool that like science, like capital S, science is telling them is dangerous and they you know do the right thing and let this person out of custody and then something happens right like that's that's got to be their worst fear it's just it's an it's an impossible hill to, to overcome if you're trying to get released i think speaking of judges and race and all the reasons to vote uh no on 25 was a commercial that i keep seeing i don't know if you guys have seen this commercial it's a uh, yes on prop 25 commercial uh where they pit I think Mr. Humphrey, maybe, but maybe a, a like a older black man uh, versus Brock Turner, and they like flash Brock Turner like rapist on the screen, and they basically say, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, why is it fair that Brock Turner, the rapist, got out while this black man, you know, accused of some low-level offense, stayed in, and my spidey sense just went off, and I was like. I can't, and I, I don't know that I can get on board with a ballot proposition that has that type of rhetoric and that type of misleading, inflammatory positioning as the basis, uh, you know, as a, like a, as the basis to support it. I don't know if you guys have seen that same commercial, but it's just so troublesome. And it kind of gave me a sense and gave me an indication of fundamentally why I, I can't, you know, I can't get on board with Prop 25 because it, it pits, it, it really does seem to classify people, but it, it, it will have the opposite effect of what the commercial anticipates. It'll ultimately hold more people like that look like the black man in that commercial incarcerated than, than it will hold people that look like, or maybe were accused of crimes like Barack Turner was. So I, I don't know what, what your thoughts are about that commercial or, or that kind of messaging. One thing I would say is that you always hear, let's get rid of money bail. And everyone's like, yeah, let's get rid of money bail. And then the next line is, we need more, you know, these people who are really should be in jail are those people, right? The reason you should get rid of money mm -hmm. bail is because other people should be in jail. Uh, not the people who have, you know, access to $8,000 to be able to post a $100,000 bond or you know, access to $5,000 to post a $70,000 bond or whatever the percentages are. Like it's, you even hear prosecutors who are, you know, hold themselves out as progressive prosecutors say, I believe we should need to get rid of money bail uh, so that we can really put the violent people and the dangerous people into jail, regardless of how much money they have. 
And I can see how politically effective that is, right? Like dangerous people should be in jail and dangerous people are able to escape jail under money bail. But that's not what the problem with money bail is. The problem with money bail is what it does to poor people, what it does to people who the system crushes and how it is a handout. It requires people with means to give their money to some company mm-hmm. with no benefit to public safety, no benefit to future court appearances. But there is something in the kind of rhetoric, right? It's very persuasive. Get rid of money bail so we can be tougher on the other, right? So we can jail, we can jail more people. Well, I think that's based on the false premise that holding someone in jail before trial is the equivalent of them just starting their sentence early. Like, I think that's how bail is used. It's like, let's just start your sentence early because your crime that you're accused of is really serious. So you need to start your sentence now. It's like, that's, that's what's wrong with the current treatment of bail. It's supposed to allow someone freedom and give the court one tool to assure their that they will return to court to learn the outcome of the case. And then if they're sentenced, then they start their sentence. They shouldn't have started the sentence before they've done the trial. So yeah, I, I, mean, I have, go ahead, Carson. No, I was going to say, it reminds me too. I think that this is like, first of all, like that's, that's so true. We so often go in for bail motion hearings and the district attorney will say, you know, I'm going to oppose your request to release them you know, with these conditions, but if they plead guilty um, in exchange for credit for time served, then I'll agree that they can be out of custody on probation with the exact same conditions, right? And it's just, it's a tool to get people to plead guilty. And it's really this, like, it just, it made me think back to the Arnold tool using arrest as a proxy for, um, you know, having committed a crime and just this like total loss of the presumption of innocence and how the system is, is supposed to be working. And this idea that like, once you've been accused of a crime, once you've been arrested for a crime, like that's that's really, you know, that's that's enough. That's all we need to know. Like forget the forget the rest of the constitution, forget the rest of this whole thing. Like we know you're guilty, that's fine. Like it's it's fine for you to be in a cage after this. Can I say two just yeah. two really brief summary thoughts? So yeah. first, I would ask anyone deciding how to vote on Prop 25 to really think about whether they want to vote yes on a law that the people that thought of it and proposed it now oppose it like Mm -hmm. is it a good idea if the people that thought of it don't like it now that's my question and second if you talk have you talked to anyone who's actually read the full law are you talking to people who are reading what they think the law does or what the law actually does because i've read the actual provisions of the law and i don't like them because they're confusing well, that's why we had you on the pod, Carly, because you're the only person I know that's read it. Maybe Carson, so, too. So, yeah. So, so that's- I, uh, I also just want to say that literally as we were recording just a few minutes ago, I had two people text me and ask me what the deal was on Prop 25. So this is a, this is a hot button issue. We're, we're in it. Y'all listen to what Carly and Carson have to say. Consider what you want to do and vote whatever way your heart tells you to vote uh, with that information. I think that we've covered uh, everything we're going to cover in this session. Uh, So thanks, everybody, uh, for listening to Aider and a Better, and we will see you next time.